So tomorrow, tomorrow's Memorial Day. Um, Memorial Day looks a little different <clears throat> today than it did when it first um, came into existence, which is late 1860s, somewhere around there. It's actually changed a lot. It's, um, it used to be called Decoration Day because the uh, first Memorial Day celebration, first Decoration Day celebration, the point was to gather people together and then for those people then to go out to the tombs of those who were killed in the Civil War and to decorate their tombs. And so that's kind of how it started. Um, it's changed a lot and uh, in some good ways and in some not so good ways. Um, <clears throat> Congress got in on one of the changes in the year 2000. And, and I don't know how this works. They legally suggested so I'm not sure if that's like a speed limit, it's just a legally suggested limit, or if that's a real thing. But Congress legally suggested uh, that all Americans on Memorial Day at 3 p.m. pause and take time to remember what the cost of their freedom was. Um, I think they picked 3 p.m. because that's usually the time during Memorial Day where we are neck deep in those freedoms. Um, so I want to encourage you, I want to encourage us to be uh, a good dual citizen tomorrow. Uh, remember that our citizenship here in America is a gift from our one true king. Remember that um, there's a reality towards to what our, our freedom actually costs us. It's, it's not without cost. And let's make sure we take time tomorrow to remember those uh, who have given their lives in service to this country and to others around the world who are lacking the freedoms that you and I enjoy. Um, I think as a people, we need to remember better. I think that's probably why God in his word so many times commands us to remember, is we're a forgetful people. And so we need to be more intentional about stopping, stopping long enough to say thank you. So tomorrow, let's commit to doing just that. Why don't we pray? <clears throat> Lord, I thank you uh, for our country. Um, Lord, our, our country brings freedoms and challenges that are unique. And, and God, you know, you know my fear. <laughs> is that uh, somehow our attention will slip off of you, the one who has given us this gift of freedom, and instead we'll land on the freedom, and we'll worship that instead of you. So protect us from that. I think a lot of us in this room see tomorrow simply as a day off from work, a day off from school, a time to run around and mess around and play games and sit outside and grill and picnic and do all that stuff. Um, but God, there are a number of people, even in this room today, that tomorrow is a reminder and a painful one at that of family and friends uh, who were lost at war. So Lord, would you strengthen and comfort those? Strengthen and comfort those families, those friends who have lost those loved ones in service to our country. Lord, may we have thankful hearts to remember what it is that they've given so we could be free. 
Lord, help us to have sympathetic hearts towards those as we remember that what we have is a result of real men, real women, moms and dads, brothers and sisters and daughters and sons who are willing to give their lives. So tomorrow, help us to honor them well, both, both by pausing to reflect on those freedoms, but also by doing well at enjoying those freedoms tomorrow. And then as we remember those who have given their lives in the past, we think of those people who are serving our country even today. Lord, would you please keep men and women who are um, doing the, the business um, of our armed forces, would you keep them safe? Would you protect them? Would you encourage them? And Lord, I do pray that you'd bring them home and that you would do that quickly. So Lord, again, thank you for our freedoms. May we not worship those freedoms or take them for granted. Instead, God, give us the ability to make much of you in our country and around the world as a result of the freedoms we enjoy. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Take your Bibles. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's kind of where we're going to anchor. We'll be there for a while. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning's topic is evangelism. Uh, we're in the middle of a series of why do Christians do such weird things. Um, and so we're talking about evangelism. I um, enjoy stopping in some of our children's classrooms off and on uh, when the worship begins, just to stick my head in there. It's a great reminder of why I love being able to be up here and not stuck in one of those classrooms. Just kidding. Um, but as I, I stopped in and I saw Kristen Tracy this morning, and she's like, so what's the topic? And I said, it's evangelism. She said, oh, that's my thing. And I was like, well, this week it's my thing too. And her response was, shouldn't it like always be our thing? So we're going to church discipline Kristen after the service. Um, <laughs> <laughs> She's right. It absolutely should be. And I think that's why people look at evangelism as being something weird, because we have lost it. We haven't made that connection. So, so um, in light of a definition for what evangelism is, I'm going to go real simple, okay? Uh, there's, I have a bunch of them here. I'm not going to read them. I'm simply going to go to the one that I'll refer to throughout the message, and it's this. Evangelism is taking someone to Jesus and seeing what happens next. It's taking somebody to Jesus and seeing what happens next. It's about Jesus' work in their lives because you can't bring them to the point of salvation. You can't rescue their souls. So you bring them to Jesus and watch what he does. So what does is, what is success in evangelism look like? What does success in sharing the gospel look like? Um, let me be clear, success isn't when somebody receives positively the message. Success in sharing the gospel, this is going to be incredibly profound. I want to warn you ahead of time, you may not be able to handle this. Success in sharing the gospel is sharing the gospel. Isn't that deep? Pretty amazing, isn't it? Came up with that all by myself right there, I think. Um, the success in sharing the gospel is simply sharing the gospel. It's like being a mail carrier. Your job is to deliver the mail. It is not your responsibility as to what the recipient does with that mail. Your job is to take the letter or the communication from point A to point B. Their job is to do with it as 
is correct to do. So it's not up to you to decide if the person who you hand those coupons to goes to Bed Bath & Beyond 17 times a week. Okay? It's not up to you if that person who you hand the wedding invite to RSVPs on time. It's not up to you if they pay their te uh, telephone bill. It's not, it's not up to you. Your job is considered, and you are considered a success if you take that material from point A and safely deliver it to point B. You are a success in evangelism if you take somebody to Jesus and just watch to see what he's going to do next. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 lays out some answers for us when we ask the question, why evangelism? So I want to begin reading in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Paul says this to the church of Corinth, Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Now what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your consciences. So just by way of small commentary here, what Paul's saying to the Corinthians, listen, what we are, everything about who we are, God knows. We're not, we're not tricking God. He's aware of it. He understands that we're not coming to you to try to make ourselves big or mighty. We're simply trying to communicate with you. So let me go to verse 13. If we are out of our minds, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So that verse could be hung up on a number of offices. If I'm out of my mind, it's for God. But if I'm in my right mind, it's got to be for you. So I'm containing my enthusiasm for you to make sure that I don't become a distraction to the things that God's trying to do in your life. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. One died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. That means we don't have the categories that are typical among the world. So what ethnicity are you? What church do you go to? What, uh, uh, what nation are you from? Where is your citizenship? We don't have those same categories anymore. Instead, we have different categories. Verse 17 explains it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The only category that matters now is this. Are you a new creation or are you not? Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, as he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. So we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who didn't know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot packed into there, and I just want to pull three things out of that text to help us understand why we are responsible to be doing evangelism, why, why we do that. The first is this. It's found in verse 17. It's because we have a new beginning. 
We have a new beginning. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. We're a a new creation. We have a new beginning. It's not just some things. It's everything. And so when you consider uh, texts like Ephesians chapter 2, what you have is, is Paul telling the church at Ephesus, listen, before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love that he had for us, he made us alive in Christ. We have been resurrected from the death of our sins into the newness of life in Jesus Christ. We are a new creation. We have a new beginning. You've got Romans 8 saying there is no condemnation for those who have been made alive in Jesus Christ because he has given you a new start. You have a place of belonging, a place of acceptance, and Jesus made you alive. Jesus made you new. So understanding that, verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away, and the new has come. So we have a a, a new beginning, but we also have a new motivation. Verse 14 is a a verse that kind of grabs your attention, and when you understand what compels means, I think it helps you understand a little better. It says, for the love of Christ compels us, controls us, pushes us, carries us along. So let me ask you, have you ever been in a crowd that was so jam-packed with people that you didn't get to decide what direction you were going to walk in? You ever been in that? Jordan and I, Jordan was probably only six or seven at the time, uh, we went to Philadelphia to check out Monster Jam. Yep, got to see trucks crush things. It was pretty cool. Uh, That was the same time uh, as a dad had an epic dad fail, this is completely off the topic, but that's okay, where, because it's his special time, it's just him and I, I bought him this huge bag of Starbursts, because as a dad, a mature man that I am, thinking, that thing's going to last for hours. 30 minutes later, there was nothing but wrappers, a little Starburst juice coming out the corner of his mouth, and him going, I don't feel good. You think? So, anyway, that was free. Um, Monster Jam ends, right? Monster Jam ends, and there was a snowstorm coming, and it had already started snowing. We were already a little sketchy about getting down there, but, but it ended. So, snow's coming, and you know what happens? At the end of those things, usually people stand around, try to get autographs, commits a little. Eh, eh, not this time. This time, everybody was afraid of the snowstorm, so everybody left at once. So, I'm walking out, I've got my little six or seven-year-old son, who actually was short at the time, and i got my hands on his shoulders, and I'm trying to lead him around, because there ain't no way I'm letting him follow me, because that's how you go home without a kid. Um, so, I've got my hands on his shoulders, and we're going, and it's like, okay, buddy, we want to go out that door over there, let's go. So, we're walking, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, okay, we're going out this door, that's cool. We can get there eventually, and we had no options of where we were going. Mark chapter 5 Uh, uh, Mark is writing and he's talking about how Jesus um, is walking through the city street and he is jam-packed with people. The King James says he's thronged with people. There are people just pressing in on him. Jairus has come to him. He's supposed to be going to heal Jairus's, or sorry, raise Jairus's daughter from the dead is what he ends up doing. Um, But he can't get there because there's so many people. This is the story where the woman with the issue of blood is sitting by the side of the road, and as Jesus happens by, she reaches out just to touch him and experiences the healing of Jesus in her life. But as he's going, it says he doesn't get to decide which way he's going, him and his disciples. The people are so jammed against him, they're carrying him along wherever they are going, he's going. That's this word, compels. 
The love of Jesus carries us along. The love of Jesus motivates us. It brings us to its desired end. The love of Jesus motivates us. And you can find motivation in a number of different things, but only for a certain amount of time, because at some point, it no longer motivates you. So for example, pleasure. You can seek pleasure. And pleasure can, the seeking of pleasure can motivate you, but it will, won't motivate you anymore when you achieve that pleasure. Um, success. Success can continue to motivate you until you have achieved success or accomplishments, then it ceases to motivate you. Fear. Fear is a motivation, isn't it? Um, I had a perfect example of that in my home this week, Friday night. Friday night, I am out cold. I mean, out cold, out cold. Uh, enough where you wake up, you have no idea where you are out cold. And I, I, I'm awoken by, by my son, who sounds like he just stumbled out of bed, knocking on the door like, <laughs> girls need help. Uh, girl, uh, <laughs> I'm like, all right, he's going to be real happy that I shared him like that. I'll tell you that. So I'm going running out of the room, and I'm trying to stumble. And as I get closer to the girls' room, what I hear is, ah, help, ah, no, no, go out the window, go out the window. And I open the door just a little because I don't know what's in there with them. <laughs> and the girl's like, there's a bat, there's a bat. Now, funny part is one of my daughters is wedged between her bed and the window and she's trying to open the window so it flies out. My other daughter's on the top bunk of the other one and the bat's like, <laughs> so they're freaking out. You want to see two young ladies get out of a bedroom quickly? I mean, it was kind of army crawler, like, get me out of here. But they came out that door and they weren't going back. They did not go back that night. Because the fear was a motivation for them. But let me be clear, fear might be a motivation to get them to move out of the room, but it only lasts as long as the fear is there. Because I'll tell you this, Sunday morning, getting ready for church, guess what didn't happen? There was no speed involved with them leaving their room this morning. The fear is a good motivation, but only as long as the fear remains. The love of Christ is a motivation that goes on and on and on and on because there is no culmination of it. There is no completion to it. The love of Christ goes on because we'll never come to its end. Why in Ephesians 3, Paul says, listen, you have been rooted and established in love. And you hear Paul's prayer for these people and it's, it's, it's actually kind of Ironic the way he prays it. He says, man, it would be amazing if you would know, if you would truly know the love of Christ that is unknowable. If you would be able to wrap your head around the, the height and the depth and the width and the, the breadth of the love of Jesus Christ, if you could just wrap your mind around that, it's going to motivate you to reach out to those around you. But The difficulty is, the longer we are loved by Jesus, and I think this is Satan himself doing a work in us, we begin to think we deserve the love of Jesus. What you and I need to always be aware of is this. It should be a shock to you every time you sing the song, Jesus Loves Me. 
Me? <laughs> I know who I am. How is that even possible? See, I think this is true. I think if you were to ask somebody, hey, are, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And if their response is, of course I am, you just found a Pharisee. But if you were to ask them, hey, are you, you a follower of Jesus? And their response is, I know, right? Is that nuts? Then you have somebody who is being compelled by the love of Jesus. And that love of Jesus needs to drive us to the place where we see other people the same way God saw us when we were lost. It needs to drive us to the place where, where, where we understand that we were in the depths of misery when God pulled us out of the flames of judgment. We need to see these people through the lens of God's love for them because we have this new motivation. So we have a new beginning, we have a new motivation, and we have a new calling. I, I think Paul is surprised um, Maybe surprised isn't the right word. I think, I think Paul's emphasizing how crazy of an idea this calling is for us. <laughs> Verse 18, he says, you know, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Then verse 19, he's like, seriously, guys. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. Think about that. Before the cross of Christ, before the rescue of Jesus in our lives, we were the enemies of God. But in Jesus, God has reconciled us. He's brought us back to right relationship with him. And now he has called every single one of us who he has reconciled to be his agent of reconciliation. He, he hasn't called angels to do that. I mean, you think about it, what would be a good plan of God to get his message of reconciliation out there? I got an idea. Let's send down some angels with some harps and wings and halos and all that good stuff. People will definitely pay attention. But we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the angels, every time they hear of reconciliation, every time they hear the declaration of the gospel, they're astonished and long to look into it so that they might be able to understand it because they've never experienced it. And God says, no, 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 the one who speaks for me will be the one who's experienced this, not angels. And it's not just a few of us who are called to be agents of reconciliation. It's every single one of us. Doesn't matter if you're an introvert or if you're an extrovert. Doesn't matter if you're eloquent or if you're a mumbler. You are called to do this. It's an issue of obedience. This isn't the gift of evangelism. This is a discipline. Obeying when God has called you to be his agent of reconciliation. He calls us an ambassador for Jesus Christ, verse 20. So what does an, an ambassador do? An ambassador speaks in a foreign country on behalf of his king. An ambassador's home isn't found where he's doing his work. His home is back where the king is. And we're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We're told in Philippians chapter 1 that we have a new citizenship. That citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. But here, this is where we're, we're responsible to be ambassadors. So every single one of you, if you have been called and known by Jesus Christ, you are on a mission to share the king's message with the people around you. 
And what's that message of the king? The gospel. It's, it's the gospel. And, and I think you see the gospel in verse 21. Sinless Jesus took my place of condemnation and gave me his position of privilege. Sinless Jesus took my place of condemnation and gave me his position of privilege. He made him who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So so God said, those of you who've experienced this miraculous resurrection, being raised from the death of your sin to the newness of life because of Jesus exchanging places with you, you tell other people. So now, you're no longer just a bank teller or a a stay-at-home parent or a barista or a student or a teacher, an IT professional, um... The wait staff. I mean, you can the list goes on. That's not your primary occupation. You're his ambassador, and God is using you to make his appeal to other teachers and students and baristas and wait staff and IT professionals. That is why you are there. God has given you a mission. So, how do I do that? I, I, we, I couldn't figure out a way to word this, so it sounds a little goofy, but the how of evangelism. Now, please understand, I am not going to walk through the evangelism explosion, uh, Romans Road, the four spiritual laws, uh, two ways to live. I'm, I'm not going to walk through all those to uh, teach you, okay, here's the ins and outs of how to share the gospel with somebody, because I think we have overcomplicated it. Those are wonderful tools. Please don't hear me. I'm not ripping on those tools. I use them myself. But, but I think if we think we need to master those to be able to evangelize and to go out and share the things that Jesus has done in our lives, I think none of us will then do it because we've overcomplicated it. The reality is the how of evangelism is telling your story. It's just tell your story. It, it's not about training. It's about what Jesus Christ did for you. So let me walk through a few stories of people doing that. So look at Mark chapter 5. <clears throat> Mark chapter 5 is a, uh, is a story of a man. He doesn't have a name. I've, I've called him a number of things. Gaddy, Bob. I mean, I just can't, <laughs> who knows what his name is. But it's a story of this fella um, who is going through excruciating pain in his life. Um, No one can control him. Nobody can help him. Nobody can fix him. And so what they've done is they've basically secluded him away uh, in the place of tombs. And so he's there all by himself, night and day. Uh, That way he's not affecting the people who are back in the village or back in the town. Now, in, in Jesus' ministry in life, what's just happened is Jesus has just crossed over the, the lake or the, the, the sea, the sea galley there, and they, uh, the, the big storm comes, and um, the disciples do what disciples do in the middle of a big storm. They freak out. And so they start crying out to Jesus, and they wake him up, and Jesus wakes up, and he says, shh, and the wind and the waves stop. And then he makes this comment to the disciples, where's your faith? And I take it from that that then Jesus goes and lays back down. I mean, I don't know that's true. 
But it seems like, and the disciples have to be like, are you serious? Can you believe we fell for that again? And where's my faith? Okay, now, get this. They, they come across the sea. They park the boat. I don't know if that's what you do. Do you park a boat? I don't know. Dock, dock a boat. That's better. Thanks. <laughs> park a boat just didn't sound right. So you dock your boat. They get out. Jesus gets out. The disciples get out. And the sand is in their, their toes and their sandals. And they're walking on the sand. And from a distance, they hear this maniac coming at them. And he's running down at them. Now, remember, this is immediately after Jesus just looked at them and it's like, come on. Where's your faith? So the poor disciples have to be like, where's my faith? Where's my faith? Where's my faith? Where's my faith? I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And he comes and he falls before Jesus and he starts talking to Jesus. He recognizes Jesus immediately. Now, now before I go any further, I, I, something that occurred to me this week, I mean, I have this, uh, Mark chapter 5 was kind of a go-to message for me when I would do camps and, and different things. And so I've preached this passage a gazillion times. But this is the first time this stood out to me, um, which actually... I love that about Scripture. I love that you can read it a hundred times, and the hundred and first time you're like, wow, how did I miss that? I love that. But, but one of the things that I've missed is this. We overlook the fact that the people who had to make the decision to put Gaddy up in the tombs were his friends and his family. That they came to the end of themselves because they could do nothing to help him. So now this man who's basically been thrown away, and I don't think that was their intent. I just think they ran out of options. But for him, how did it have to feel? So, so I'll say the guy who, who basically was, was thrown away is, is there, and he comes into the presence of Jesus, and you know the story. This is the story of the pigs, and, and, and the demons get cast out of Gaddy into the pigs. The pigs go off the cliff. They're bobbing, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff happens, right? And the townspeople come, and they're torqued, because, hey, pigs cost money. And yeah, you healed that guy, that's all fine and good, but I don't know that his healing was quite worth the amount we just lost with the bobbin pigs. Which, there's an indictment of our souls sometimes, isn't it? But, 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 but moving along. So, after all that's happened, it talks about Gaddy, who is now sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it makes two points about him that are really important. He's in his right mind, and he's clothed. Now, clothing, definitely a priority in life. But he had lived such a life where it was something that he did not have. But now he does. Now he's sitting in his right mind. He is clothed before Jesus, and, and everything has changed. The townspeople are like, okay, this is crazy. I can't believe this is happening. And so, so when they leave and they ask Jesus to leave, he gets back in the boat. The disciples get back in the boat. And, and look at verse 19. No, I'm sorry. Look at verse 18. As Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus earnestly that he might remain with him. I mean, that, what a, there is nothing odd about that request. This man has just had all these demons cast out of him. He is now clothed and in his right mind for the first time for who knows how long. And the one who is responsible for it is Jesus. And so what does he do? He runs to the boat as Jesus is getting ready to leave. And he says, me, I want to come with you. I, I want to remain with you. It's the same terminology that is used when Jesus called his disciples to himself. I just be one of your disciples. 
not a crazy request. You would think Jesus would be like, sold, get in the boat. But instead it says, Jesus says this, verse 19, Jesus did not let him, but instead told him this, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. The response of Jesus to this man who just wants to jump in the boat and be like the other disciples and be another disciple, the response of Jesus is, no, go home. You, you, you've got to go, go home. There's people who need to hear the ending of your story. And I'm going to tell you, there is nobody who's going to be able to communicate to those people the effectiveness of your story like you can. Nobody. So you go to your people, your friends, your family, and you explain your story to them. You lay out your story to them. And so I'm just kind of kicking around the idea of what that might sound like as Gaddy sat down with his family and friends. He didn't walk through the Roman's road. He didn't look at him and say, if you were to die and stand before God right now, why would he let you in? What he said was this. Remember? And again, this is sanctified imagination. <laughs> remember, remember when I was a teenager? I mean, who, who'd have thunk that you look back at my life and be like, teenager, those are the good days. <laughs> Sorry, teens, love you. My bad. Remember when I was a teenager and then all of a sudden all this trouble began? Remember when I began cutting myself? Remember when I would scream all night? Hmm. Remember that you couldn't do anything to help me? It was my friends, my family. I know you, you wanted the best for me, but because you couldn't help me, you sent me up there. And I know this wasn't your intent, but I felt rejected. That Jesus, Jesus came right at me. He did what nobody else could do. He made me right. And it says in, in verse 20, he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. Why? Why, why were they all amazed? because they saw this new creation standing in front of them, renewed and in his right mind. They saw the love of Jesus in action, embracing him with mercy and grace. It also confronted them with their own inability and weakness to bring real change to somebody that they cared about. It says they were amazed. There was, there was some type of response. I, I don't have time to do John chapter 9, so turn to John chapter 4 to see another picture of this, this in action. John chapter 9, as you turn it, I'll just tell you, that's the story of the man born blind. And the disciples probably asking him well-intentioned questions, saying, Jesus, so who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus' response was, nobody sinned. Just so that God's glory could be made much of, that everybody could see it. And Jesus takes the mud, spits on it, puts it in the guy's eyes, says, go wash and, and then the guy can see. And then you have this, and actually John 9 is hilarious to read. You have this interaction, the, 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 the religious leaders of the day come to him and are like, so, tell us how it happened. Um, he spit, put it in my eye, I can see. No, but how did he really do it? 
He spit, put him in my eye, I'm gonna wash, now I see. Do you think he's, listen, guys, I was blind, I see, he's the one that did it, that's all I got. See, there's your story. I was blind, but now I see. And the one that did it, name's Jesus. John chapter 4, you have the story of Jesus and this Samaritan woman, and, and I'll try not to move too fast, but I've got to wrap this up here. So um, Jesus is tired from his journey. He's walking through the desert. He gets into Samaria. He stops at this place called Jacob's Well. It's about noon, which is a really hot time. I mean, it's, it's, it's perspiration on overload at that moment. So Jesus stops, the disciples go to find food or buy food in the village. Jesus is sitting there, and this woman arrives at the well. Now, you've got to understand how, I can't express how highly unusual this is. This doesn't happen. The women would come to the well first thing in the morning before it got hot. They would fill up their buckets, they'd bring it home, and they would have enough water throughout the day. Nobody came to the well at noon. It was way too hot. But there Jesus sits, and here comes this Samaritan woman to the well, and Jesus sees her, and, and <laughs> it's kind of this funny interaction. Jesus basically says, um, okay, could you get me a drink? And the woman says, wait, hold on, hold on. Are you talking to me? You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Men don't talk to women. But you're talking to me. And Jesus says, you know, if you knew me, your proper response would have been, can you get me a drink? And she says, what? You don't even have a bucket. You are so confusing. And you've got a picture Jesus like, all right, let's start this over. Let's try again. You drink the water from this well. And tomorrow, you'll be back to fill up your buckets again because you're still going to be thirsty. But if you drink of the water that I give to you, <laughs> like a well that just keeps welling up in you, you will never thirst again. And then suddenly we get a little transparency into the real issue in this woman's life. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> Sir, when she hears about this water that will just continue to take care of her thirst so she'll never have to go to the well again. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I'll never have to come here to draw water again. Why is that such a big deal? As we're about to find out, this woman was a woman who, whenever she would show up at the well, would be the object of ridicule and judgmentalism, probably mocking. Why, she went at noon to avoid the crowds. And here, when she, she hears the fact that I'll never have to come and expose myself to those things again, let me have it! And Jesus, as he would be, is the expert at entering into the, the weakness that is exposed in this moment. And he says, okay, okay, so, so go get your husband. She says, I uh, don't have a husband. And he says, good job, man. You navigated that one well. Because you don't. You're, you're absolutely right. You've had five husbands. And the dude you're living with right now, he's not one of them. And she is aghast. 
And, and as is, and we'll talk about this in the next few weeks, uh, as, as often is the case when you begin talking about real, legitimate, need-based spiritual things, the tendency is for us to chase rabbits and run at religious things. So she begins throwing all of these red herrings out there to get Jesus, so where do we actually worship and what is worship? And, how do, and he's like, no, 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 bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. You've been running on this treadmill of need in your life. And the reality is, you get your water from me, and that need is forever taken care of. And uh, verse 28 of John 4 says, the woman left her water jar. She was so excited, so enthusiastic. She, She left her water jar. She ran into town, and she told the people, come on, come see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come, come see, don't come to church. I mean, you should come to church. Obviously, come to church. Don't come, you come see this man. Don't read this book. No, 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 you should read books, but that's not what she said. Come see Jesus. And then let's see what happens. Could he be the Messiah? You skip forward to verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman had said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two more days. And many more believed because of what he said. And I love verse 42. She was a faithful storyteller. She went back to her friends and her family, and she told them the story. I was on this treadmill. I've been searching and searching and searching. And for no reason, I mean, all conventional wisdom says he should not have reached out to me, but he reaches out to me, and he lays it out for me, and he says, listen, my identity and my satisfaction can be found in him and him alone. Can this one be the Messiah? And and says many people believed her, and, and they believed her, and that's wonderful, but what's amazing is they believed her, and they went to Jesus, and verse 42, they say this, we no longer believe just because of what you said. No, we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is really the Savior of the world. So glad you told me your story, and it's awesome, but I've met him myself. The gospel didn't spread through trained evangelists or coming to church or trained speakers. The gospel was spreading through everyday, ordinary, transparent, informal discussion of of who you are and what Jesus has done for you. Tell your story. Tell your story. But I don't know where to begin. Here's where you begin. I was blind. Now I see Jesus did it. Tell your story. Do you understand the fact that you were separated from God because of your sin and unable to do anything about it yourself? But Jesus Christ exchanged places with you and he became sin himself and took upon him the the wrath of God. And instead of you getting the wrath of God, you had his righteousness placed on your shoulders. Tell your story. So whenever evangelism is spoken about, usually what happens is a person comes to mind, and you try to push it out as best you can. Because like, man, if I think of that person, that means God's doing that, and then I have to talk to him, and I don't want to talk to him, so I'm not thinking about it, and then that person just keeps coming to mind. So who's your one? Who's that person that continues to pop in your brain? Who is that person 
who, who God continues to bring up and says, they need to hear your story. Well, who's that person at work? Who's that person in your neighborhood? Who's that person in your family? Who's your one? So I did this first service. I'll do it this service as well. I'm, I'm going to kind of make something up. <laughs> so that's scary for all of us. Let's commit as a church by July 4th to simply share our story with that one person. Not, not bring them to church. Hey, church is wonderful. If you want to bring them to church, I'm going to do my best to share the gospel every week. That's fantastic, but, but that's not what I'm talking about. So, so here's what that looks like. Invite them to church. I'll share the gospel with them. Go out to lunch with them afterwards and say, hey, what did you think about that gospel thing? And when they start asking you questions, you say, let me tell you my story. Tell your story. It's not about the training. It's not. You know what will motivate you to tell your story? What will equip you to tell your story well? Is believing that you are a miracle. Believing that all signs point to the fact that you should not be standing in good favor with God right now. But God, who is rich in mercy, loved you with the depth of a love that you can never truly fully comprehend. And he sent his son to take your place under his wrath. You, are, you understand that? Do you recognize the full weight of what it means to be his? You weren't saved just to come to church. You weren't saved to sit. You weren't saved to come and sing gospel-soaked songs. God rescued you so you could be his ambassador. That's what, that's what 1 Peter 2 tells us. He walks through and says, listen, you people, you weren't a people. You didn't have any priests. Uh, you, you, you were kind of left out there by yourselves. You were outcasts. But now, 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Oh, that's wonderful. Yay, now I can just go to church. Now I can listen to stations that play gospel music. Now I can sing. Now I can give. Now I can read my Bible. That's great. Wonderful. No, you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were saved to be his ambassador. Are you telling his story? Father, thank you for our time together. Lord, I um, am grateful for our church. I'm grateful for the people that you have placed in my life who live this out day in and day out. And God, I pray for the ones who wrestle with sharing the gospel. Father, I pray that you would give them a courage and an enthusiasm that, um, that Lord, is, is, is not manufactured, not man-made, but it's an overflow of the joy that's in their hearts because of the salvation that you have blessed them with. God, I pray for the ones. I pray for those people uh, who have come to mind. Father, that, um, that simply you would open their hearts even now. That, Lord, you would give them listening ears. And that, God, as our people share their story, that they would be responsive to you. 
Lord, may we seek to be obedient to you in all ways, including the, the area of evangelism. We love you. Amen.